here we go. Uh, this is our, our fourth and final week uh, in our Bible series. And in a way, uh, this week, hopefully, we're going to tie together all of our weeks uh, as we consider what it means uh, to now let the Bible flow out into our daily lives. So over the last three weeks, uh, we've looked at what it means to listen to God in his word, uh, what it means to know God through his word, what it means to delight in God and, and in his word. And finally, we come this week to the last part, uh, and, and we're going to see that if all three of those are true, if we're, if we're doing each of those, if all three are true of us, well, then the natural outworking is that we will seek to obey God and his word. We're going to be back in Matthew 4 one last time, uh, and then we'll bounce to a few other passages uh, as well. But if you've been here for the last two weeks, this will now be your third time hearing it. Uh, if you haven't been here, that's okay. Uh, maybe you're just visiting for the child dedication. Uh, but hopefully you can tune in carefully as well. Uh, I want you to listen as, as we read. I want you to listen for what Jesus does and doesn't do. And why? Listen for how Jesus obeys and who Jesus obeys. So with that, Matthew chapter 4, hopefully you've got a Bible open. There's Bibles at the end of the rows uh, in baskets if you need one. But Matthew chapter 4, 1 to 11, hear the word of the Lord from Matthew. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit and into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the devil took him and to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let me pray. God, we, we sang these words earlier, but we pray them again, and we say, God, open the eyes of our hearts. We want to see you. God, we want to see you in your word now as we look at it. Would you speak through it? Would you reveal yourself to us? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we are looking at what it means to obey God and his word. And before we jump in, it may be worth pointing out what obedience is not. First and foremost, first and foremost, gospel obedience, obedience in light of what Jesus has done, is not about us. Okay, gospel obedience, it's not legalism. Okay? It's not trying to earn something from God. We don't obey in order to, to, to put ourselves in his favor or get something from him. It is not self-justification. Gospel obedience is also not pretense. 
It's not a show. It's not something that we, that we kind of put on for other people so they can see us and think that we're special or holy or something like that. It's not self-congratulation. Lastly, gospel obedience is not a drag. It's not a bummer. It's not supposed to be some sort of punishment that we heap upon ourselves. It's not self-flagellation. Because gospel obedience is not about us primarily. It's not self-justification, self-congratulation, or self-flagellation. It's not about making ourselves feel bad or feel good. It's not making ourselves look bad or look good with God or others. No, obedience is necessarily about someone else. And when it comes to the Bible, obedience is all about God. So to help us talk about what obedience is, we're going to frame our time this morning thinking about three pictures of God that we see in our passage, three pictures of God, and then connect those to the themes of the last three weeks. So here's what we're going to see. We're going to talk about what it means to listen and obey our Lord. We're going to talk about what it means to know and obey our Father, and then lastly, to delight in and obey our God. So let's dig into part one. Listen and obey our Lord. The Christian life following Jesus is about more than just reading the right things. It's about more than just knowing the right things, about more than just believing the right things. The Christian life is about living. Our relationship with God and, and all the stuff that we take in should lead to a life lived out. And because it is done in response to what God has said, then the doing part of the Christian life, well, it's rightly called obedience. We are obeying what God has told us to do. Now, at the front end, we just can acknowledge this may give many of us pause because, again, if we're honest, in our hearts, we don't want to obey anyone. You know, we're Americans. We are our own masters. We decide for ourselves what is right, what is wrong. No one tells us what to do. We are our own authority. See, it's, it's in our cultural blood to throw off the shackles of tyranny ever since 1776. You know, we rule ourselves. And too often we think laws, well, they don't apply to me. They apply to you people, but not me. You know, and the only time that I want laws is when all of you people are bugging me. And then I, you know, it's important to have laws. And this happens, this happens to us, those both on the right and the left. We both have this conceptually wired into us. If we think politically, you know, both, both the right and the left, both are afraid of the corrupt powers above. And so they advocate either for individual freedom or systemic justice. But in both cases, it's those powers above that are corrupt and ruining things that we need to be afraid of. But Jesus, well, Jesus has no such problem. Jesus looks up and he says, him only shall you serve. Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. He calls God the Lord. This is our first picture. He says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. This is the point. When God is the Lord of the universe and the Lord of our lives, well, obedience then is loving service to our master. We serve a master. Living in the kingdom is obedience and service to our king. Now look at Jesus' obedience in our passage. He listens to God and obeys. Three times he rejects the temptations of the devil by saying, it is written. He listens and obeys. 
The calculus for Jesus is simple. It is written, God said it, I'll do it. Now notice in our passage how obedience, it means both not doing some things and doing other things. It means saying no and saying yes. So he says we are not to live by bread alone, but live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We are not to put the Lord to the test and the implication we are to trust in God. We are not to bow down to Satan. That's a pretty clear one, I think, for believers. We are to worship and serve the Lord. See, Jesus listens to God. He listens to what is written, and he obeys. See, listening is critical to obedience. If we don't want to listen, we won't obey. Kevin took us through this the first week, and it was so good. But, but listening, it's critical to obedience. Several years ago, I was discipling a small group of guys and, and walking with them. And, and one of the guys in my group, I had been with him with a couple years, and he probably was a sophomore or junior in high school at this point. And word, you know, comes through the grapevine. Uh, I find out, okay, he's been smoking weed with his friends, so we're going to have a sit down. We're going to talk about it. And so we're, you know, I forget, we were, I think we were in my car, you know, and we're sitting and we're talking about his life and all that kind of stuff, and it comes out. And, and we're, he just starts spouting, like, foolishness that I have heard many, many times from his friends and stuff, things like, well, you know, it's, it's natural. It's of the earth, right? So it's fine. What could be possibly wrong, you know? And, and different things that I've, yeah, that we just hear. Uh, but I remember him saying, specifically, he says, well, uh, uh, I mean, is there, is there even a Bible verse against smoking weed? And I said, okay, hold on right there. Hold on. I, I could make, I could construct for you a pretty tight biblical argument about why you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. But let's just hypothetically say, if there was, if there was a verse that said, Bobby, thou shalt not smoke weed with your friends, would you even listen? And he just didn't answer because we both knew what he was going to say. No, of course not. He didn't want to listen. He, he, he was not willing to. He didn't care. He, he would not listen to God, and therefore he was not obeying. Listening is critical to obedience. If we won't listen to God, well, then it, we won't obey. And so the question for us, if we were to circle back and review a couple weeks ago, what do we do when we disagree with the Bible? We need to ask ourselves, where is my, where is your ultimate authority? Who do you listen to? And we know ever since Genesis 3 that we have trouble trusting in God and what he says. Now, I find it fascinating that in Matthew, right after telling us of Jesus' obedience and faithfulness to God's word, we then get chapters 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus' word for us, for his people. Over and over again, Jesus says to them, you've heard it said, and now I say to you. And, and he's, it's, it's as if he's giving a, not a new law, but an amplified law. See, Jesus teaches with authority, and he expects his followers to listen and obey. Too often we get it backwards. And instead of listening to, a Jesus, to Jesus and obeying him, well, no, we lob up our requests and demands at God and expect him to serve us. We treat him like the servant and we act like the master. We make ourselves Lord. But Jesus says, no, no, no. Jesus is Lord and he expects his followers to listen and obey. Now, if you have your Bible open, turn over just a couple pages to the end of chapter 7. End of chapter 7, he's wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount, and he has this powerful imaginative conclusion. He says this, Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine 
and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Jesus says, you want to live? You need to hear and do. You need to listen and obey. Be hearers and doers. Jesus' brother James picks up these themes and in his letter, in chapter 1, verse 22, he says this. He says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. He says, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, well, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away at once and forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. We are to be hearers and doers. We are to listen and obey. And when that happens, we will be blessed in our obedience. And this leads to our next point. While some of us, uh, our next point, which is know and obey our Father. While some of us need to be reminded that we are not our own masters and we need to reorient our hearts towards serving our master, others of us need to be reminded that God is a good Father. And we need to see that obedience means life. All along in this series, we've said that our approach to the Bible needs to be grounded in our relationship with God. See, we read and we study and we learn because we want to listen to him and we want to know him and we want to delight in him. And the same is true with our obedience to his word. It's because we want to obey him. See, we're not obeying a checklist, but a person. Jesus shows us this in the passage that, that God is, he's not just our master and our Lord, but also a good father. Remember, Satan, he, he's trying to question Jesus' identity as the Son of God. He's trying to disrupt his relationship with the Father. And two of the axes upon which this temptation revolves are God's provision and protection. Now, throughout the Bible, part of the picture that it paints, a part of what it means to be a father is to provide and protect. And Satan questions this. He says, no, 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 make yourself bread. God is not providing. He says, throw yourself off this cliff. Let's test his protection. The first two temptations, they question God's identity as a good father. Well, if we can know, if we can see God as a good father, then obedience, well, it becomes a loving response, grounded in that relationship. See, God in his goodness as creator and father, well, he's given us, he has provided this bountiful world, this good world that is ordered in a particular way. And he's given us his law, his revealed wisdom to protect us. He's provided and protecting us. He's given us his law for, for how to best live in accordance with what he has made and ordained. See, his commands and our obedience, well, they are for our good. Like the wise man who builds his house on the rock instead of the sand, it will go well for him. We can have a solid foundation to weather the storms of life. 
my father-in-law has a ton of one-liners that he repeats often, and I've adopted several of them because they're humorous and funny. Uh, But one that he's used on me as of late, recently, quite a bit, especially when he wants to win a silly argument, is he says, you know, life is hard, son, but it's harder when you're stupid. And, you know, we'll get in a little argument, and then he'll repeat that again. It says, life is hard, but it's harder when you're stupid. And, uh, you know, we joke about it, and I get angry, and, you know. Uh, you know, the quote is often attributed to John Wayne. There's memes all over the internet you can see with his picture, and you can almost hear the Duke's voice in saying it. Unfortunately, I looked it up on Snopes. It wasn't him. It was from some other movie. But uh, this summer, after Daniel, we're going to study the Proverbs, We're going to look at the book of Proverbs, and we're going to see in that book the way of wisdom versus the way of folly, the way of foolishness. And we're going to learn from the book of Proverbs that life is harder when you're stupid. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount, well, it's it's all about wisdom. You know, all of Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God, though at times they might seem counterintuitive or upside down, it turns out they're actually the way to life. Abundant life, flourishing life, and, and that life comes from following Christ and living according to what he said. So theologian Kevin Van Hooser has written this. He says, when Jesus spoke about hearing and doing, he was thinking about authority, wisdom, and freedom. The wise person acts in accordance with the way things are, which means in accordance with what God says. This is also the way of freedom, for to live wisely means living along the grain of the created order. You're no longer wrestling with with how the world is, but rather you're you're living along the grain of how God has made things. See, biblical obedience, it's about more than a checklist of biblical commands. It does include following the clear commands of Scripture. If the Bible says do not murder, then don't murder. That is what obedience looks like. But biblical obedience also includes trying to live faithfully in response to the revealed wisdom of the scriptures. As you grow in your knowledge of God and his character, as you grow in your knowledge of of his word and and, and the world, well, we begin to respond in obedience and live according to, to what we find in the scriptures. That said, God's wisdom sometimes is, is higher than our own. And we can't always see the wisdom of his commands. There's times when we look at scripture and it's not maybe self-evident to us why that could be for our good or how that is for our good. But when we know God, we can trust him and obey. Even when we may not understand why. Do you know the name Rosaria Butterfield? She's written three books that I know of. Uh, One of them was one of the more profound books I've read in the last several years. Just fantastic book. But her story is wild. She was... Uh, English professor, upstate New York at Syracuse University, intellectual elite, uh, a practicing lesbian living with a woman. Um, And she finds her way to Christ and comes to Christ and it just, it ruins her life. She says in one of her books, she says, you know, I lost everything but the dog. And, you know, my life got turned upside down. Uh, But but as, and for the good, but as she tells her story of coming to Jesus and all that it means, she writes this. She says, I expected that in all areas of my life, understanding came before obedience, not the other way around. See, I wanted to sh- God to show me on my terms why my sin was a sin. I wanted to be the judge and not the one being judged. And she goes on to say that as she wrestled with the scriptures, I mean, she, she just 
attacked the Bible and went after it and then found it to be self-evidently true. But as she began wrestling with it and trying to live it out, she found that often understanding followed obedience. Now, obeying a loving father, it flows from knowing who he is. We come to, to understand, to grasp, and know who he is, and we know that he is trustworthy. We know that he is good, and that he has established and ordered the world in a particular way, and then we want to live in light of that. When God commands something, well, we trust that it is for our good, even when we can't see it, when it's not self-evident. And we trust it's the best way to live. So as we consider obeying a good father, we can ask ourselves, are we trusting Jesus' vision for the good life? Are we trusting in, in, in the Bible's vision of the good life, that his way is a, is a better way to live, even when it doesn't maybe line up with our experience, even when it doesn't line up with maybe how we want things to be? Will we trust him more than we trust ourselves? Loving obedience to the word of God flows from knowing that God is a good father who has our best in mind. Well, this brings us to our last point, that we need to delight in and obey our God. See, the end of it all, about all our talking about, excuse me, the end of all that we are talking about is delight. Delight in God. Delight and obedience. Well, they're, they're meant to flow one into the other. After uh, the Reformation, which happened about 500 years ago, uh, beginning with Luther, the Protestant churches, they began writing these things called catechisms. And the catechisms, it's a big word. They were just tools for teaching people the faith, for teaching the church the faith, uh, the basics of the Christian faith. And these catechisms often were kind of this question and response format. And you have different catechisms from different churches around Europe at the time. But one of the more well-known ones came from England. Uh, it's called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And check out the first two questions. Okay, this, is, this is their lead in what they, to, to the Christian faith. Question one, what is the chief end of man? What is the goal of humanity? What is, what is the goal for our lives, our existence? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And then question two, it ties right in with what we're talking about. Well, what is the rule that God has given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? Answer, the word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. We are meant to enjoy God and glorify him, to delight in God and obey him, to obey him and delight in him forever. That's, that is the life that we were created to live. That is the life that we'll be living for eternity if we are in Christ. For all eternity, we'll be giving glory to God and enjoying him, basking, <laughs> delighting in him. It will be so good. But glorifying God in obedience is actually the road to our joy, to our highest enjoyment. This is why Jesus says, again, verse 10, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. When we are delighting in God, well, our obedience becomes worship. Because when we know God and his word, and we begin to see how our obedience to our Lord and Master leads to life, 
that our obedience to our good father, that it leads to life? Well, we will delight in him and we will delight in his commands. See, we were made not just to follow the rules, but to love the rules. I know that seems crazy, but we were made not just to follow the rules, but to love the rules. Okay? For sports fans out there, think about your favorite sport, or I'll, I'll just pick soccer, okay? When you begin to play soccer, think of three-year-old, four-year-old AYSO, okay? When kids begin to play soccer, it is just wet and wild. You know, they are going crazy. They don't understand anything. They're just running around, ball, kick, you know, goal, I'm there. They swarm tactic, you know, the whole bit, okay? And you know, they just, they just want to score. And they're like, what do you mean I can't pick it up? And what do you mean I can't shove him over? And what do you mean I can't do these things? You know, all these rules, they seem so restrictive. You know, can't I just kick the ball into the goal? But once you learn the game, for the soccer players out there, and you begin to, to, to play the sport and learn the sport and see the beauty of the sport and, and understand its movements and, and when it's played well, well, you begin to love the strategy and the gameplay. And if someone comes along and, and they want to play backyard ball and they want to mess around, you know, it may be fun for a few minutes, but it's not the same. It lacks the glory. Why? You have grown to love the rules. It's no fun to play with a bunch of hacks who just ruin things. You know, you want to play at the, the highest level. You know, whatever your game is, whether it's ping pong or, or bottle flipping or whatever it is, you know, that people are doing. Now, the same is true. The same is true in music or dance or theater or the arts. You know, you, you work hard. You study hard to learn the rules of your particular art. And there's guidelines. Maybe you have a really restrictive teacher who's like, you know, drilling you and how it works. And it's, again, it's restrictive at first, but then it actually frees you up to create true beauty. When you learn the rules of how to play piano, all of a sudden it sets you free to, to let loose in jazz riffs and all that kind of stuff, instead of just noise, you know. The classic example of the arts, I mean, this is really high art, so hang in there, is um, Michael Scott in The Office, you know. <laughs> Maybe you've seen the episode where he does improv, and no matter what the scene is or what the rules are, he's like, boom, Michael Scott, like pulls out his gun, and everyone around him hates it. They hate him because, as you know, Michael Scott ruins everything. And, and he just disregards the rules of the game, and it's no fun, and it's not funny. And, and these you know, actors who are trying to do this comedy, they're like, You're, you, you don't understand comedy. This isn't how it works. They have grown to love the rules. And someone who flaunts them, it just, it's annoying and, and terrible. See, we're not supposed to just to follow the rules, but to love the rules. So my hope in, in my parenting, well, it's not just to have my kids obey me. I don't want them just to grow up and think of me as this really restrictive tyrant, and that's all they know of me, no. I do want them to obey. I do want them to follow the rules, but then I want them to grow in wisdom and begin to love the rules that we have in our home. You know, as a side note, it's important not to have stupid rules for that very reason. <laughs> but you get the point. You know, we looked at Psalm 19 last week. I'd encourage you to read it again this week. The psalmist loves the commands of the Lord. He loves the rules. And he's delighting in obedience because he delights in God. When we are delighting in God, our obedience becomes worship. But we can also say it the other way. We can say that when our obedience becomes worship, well, it will lead to delighting in God. 
How is that possible? Let me see if I can tease it out. See, God is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Not just over our lives in terms of dictating how things go, but over the whole universe. Which means he has at his disposal all the resources of the universe to equip us for every good work. So all of our lame excuses for not obeying him turn out to be lame excuses. Because he's Lord. He, he, can, he has power over everything and he's a good father, which means he's willing to equip us. Do you remember Moses at the burning bush? God commands him. He says, Moses, I'm going to use you to take down an empire. I'm going to use you to free my people. You're going to go and be a part of something big. And Moses says, no, send someone else. You know, five times he objects. He says, God, not me, not me, not me, not me. Moses does not obey right away. He objects over and over again. He says, who am I to go? And God says, I will go with you. Moses says, what if they, what if they don't believe me? God says, I'll give you signs and wonders. You know, your staff will turn to a snake. You'll get the leprous hand thing. You know, it's going to be crazy. My favorite is in chapter four. Verse 10, Moses objects. It's on the screen. He says, oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent. Either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, I'm slow of speech and tongue. And then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth, and I will teach you what you shall speak. I mean, it, <laughs> I just love him. It's like, no, not me. And God's like, don't you know who I am? Come on, go. See, God, he, he's the Lord, which means, yes, he can command Moses because he's the boss. He can command him what to do, but he's also the Lord of the universe. He made our mouths, and he tells Moses, guess what? I, I'm going to be with your mouth. I made that thing, and I'll give you what to say. The same is true for us. He's our Lord. He can command us things, but he's also Lord over our problems, Lord over our objections, all of our shortcomings, all of our excuses, and he can supply our every need because he's Lord, and he is willing to supply every need because he's our Father. And so Paul can write, his grace is sufficient for you, for his power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. When I was a youth pastor, I remember several times students coming to me and saying, you know, Eric, I just, I just don't feel like I've experienced God recently. You know, it's been at least three weeks since camp and we had the camp high and now I'm just, I'm in the desert again. I'm, I'm in a dry place. I haven't experienced God. Like, what do I do? And we talk about it and I try to encourage them that, you know, discipline with students is challenging. Um, but, but I would tell him, I'd say, okay, hold on. I mean, this became my standard response. I said, when was the last time uh, that you tried anything that would actually require God's help? When, when was the last time that, that you, you went out and, and tried to obey God in a way that would need God to help you? Or do you, do you only do things that you're capable of? Do you only do things that you're capable of doing on your own? And then I would say, if you want to experience God, try to obey God. Do something that you think that you don't have it in you to do, whether that's sacrificial service, whether that's evangelism, whether that's, you know, reaching out to, to particular people, hospitality, whatever it is you think you can't do, try. Ask God to use you. And then when you get to the end of yourself, you know, you know how much rope you have. When you get to the end, see if God shows up. 
See if God supplies love when you didn't think you had it to give. See if God supplies joy in places you didn't think you could find it. See if he supplies peace and patience and kindness and self-control, all of the fruits of the Spirit. See if God shows up. I love the way that Kevin ended our, our first gathering. I had forgotten to include this, but, but he's promised his Holy Spirit the helper. We have the Spirit of Christ in us. We are united to him, which means the Christ that obeyed perfectly is now in us, equipping and empowering us to live for him. And when God shows up, rejoice. Rejoice in your experience of God and delight in him. See, then our obedience will flow from worship and our obedience will become worship as we commune with God and experience God in the midst of our obedience. Obey. Obey and see how God proves himself to be the Lord, the Lord of the universe as well as your life. Obey and see how God pr proves himself to be a loving father who actually ordered the world in such a way that there's life on the other end of your faithfulness. Obey and delight in and worship the Lord your God. Now at its core, worship is a response. It's a response to who God is and what he's done. And this is key because it goes back to the beginning when we said that obedience is not legalism or earning something from God. No, if obedience is worship, well, then it's a response to God and all that he's done in Christ. So Ephesians chapter 2 says, By grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Your salvation is a gift, not a result of works, not a result of your obedience, so that no one may boast. But then he goes on, verse 10, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Our obedience follows what Christ has already done for us. If you read Paul's letters, they generally start with several chapters explaining the gospel and the basics of the gospel and implications, and then they have a turn usually, which says, this is therefore how you should live. So in Romans, his magnum opus, it's 11 chapters of gospel, 11 chapters of the implications of, of God's activity in the world, and then he turns in chapter 12 and he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We obey as worship in response to the mercies of God because the mercies of God transform us. I love that, that Paul commands that something happen to us. He says, be transformed as if we, can, we can't do that to ourselves. So how does it happen? Well, by listening and knowing and delighting in what Jesus has done. He says it renews our mind and it compels us out into transformed living. See, when we see that Jesus lived perfectly for us, when we hear that, when we know that, when we delight in that, well, then we will stop trying to perform for God or others. We stop trying to earn credit from God or credibility with others. We can rest in his perfect righteousness, which is given to us. And so we can live and obey, not to earn, but because everything was earned for us. We don't have to perform for God or others. And when we see that Jesus died for us, 
Well, then we stop trying to pretend that we are something that we're not. We can be honest about our sin. We can repent of it. We stop trying to posture or keep up certain appearances or hide our sin or hide our hypocrisy from others or hide our weaknesses. Instead, we rest in his perfect sacrifice, which has covered all of that. So we can live and obey, not to try to cover over our sin, but because it was covered for us. Listening to the gospel, knowing the gospel, delighting in the gospel, what Jesus has done, his life and death for you, can renew your mind, can transform you, and it will lead to obedience. I'm going to pray, and the worship team can come on up. Uh, I'm, I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask you to pray with me. Uh, the words, if you want to follow along silently, are, are going to be on the screen, or you can just close your eyes and pray these words in your heart. But we're going to confess <laughs> our lack of obedience. Ooh, teeny font. Um, confess our lack of obedience and then ask God to, to give us all we need to live for him. But let's pray. Almighty and most merciful Father, we've strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We've followed too much the, the plans and desires of our own hearts. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. And we've done those things which we ought not to have done. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We're truly sorry. And we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us. That we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen.